0: This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing games and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Monday, November 2nd of 2020, it's episode 188. In this episode, Eden, a topic selected by our Patreon backers, plus strange, weird, and or difficult game mechanics in our personal histories, the SCP Wiki, an amazing public domain collection you should check out... And
1: more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Greg. I'm Peter.
2: And I'm Jenny. It's
1: been a bit. About a month. Uh It's been a while. We took a little time off because, you know, we needed a little bit of a break and we had two hours of content for you last time. I hope everybody listened to that. That panel was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. Mm. If not for other considerations, I would be sorely tempted to just have us do do this live on Twitch chat every time <laughs> we record because just interacting with listeners is so much fun. It is, mm-hmm.
0: but oh boy, other considerations are real, like you said. So, I yeah. know
1: they are, but ah, oh, it's so good. But that was that was a delight, and we thank everybody who came out for that. It, it was really good. It should be mentioned we are recording this the night before the election in the United States, so things are probably – you may hear some stress in our voice. We're not going to be talking about that too much on this show, but if you hear that, understand why. Yeah, That's all I want to say about that. It has also just been a stressful couple of days at a personal level for a couple of Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm.
0: Sure has been uh you know why don't you let me get into it here because this is gonna. yeah yeah come- go
2: ahead so go, go and on, vent. vent on it out.
0: friday i went out to a customer site to pull out some network gear to be shipped fairly normal thing to do you know not a big deal showed up at this you know secure data facility uh, i'd been there once before kind of got all the kinks ironed out the first time they already had my biometrics on file and everything sailed right through But I was working with a uh, guy from there because you kind of need an extra pair of hands when you're taking switches out of the top of the rack that are screwed in at the front and the back and you don't want to drop them. He's masked. I'm double masked. I I had an N95 on and then I had like a thinner cloth mask like my wife makes over top of that. So I'm sitting there working, you know, with him, but I didn't think much of it. Came home, finished my day, you know, did my weekend. Actually went and visited my parents yesterday. Came into work this morning, and the first thing I saw in my work email was a notice that I had been in sustained contact with somebody who had tested positive for COVID. Whee! Yeah, I was on top of a ladder, and he was standing right underneath me for that time. I'm not sure. Hopefully the masks did their job. That Between, you know, my
1: lungs and his, there were three masks, so... that is. I'm glad he was masked because yes. let me tell you, I've seen a lot fewer masks lately. Oh, and boy. that's been frustrating.
2: Same from people who should know better. I could yeah. go
0: on for ages about that. But yeah. I won't.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm very upset. But that's a separate conversation. The
0: good news is, is um, even though I'm going to be out of work for three to seven days while I wait on the COVID test that I had, they have developed the test to the point where it is no longer a brain tickler. So I just had to swab like the inside of both of my nostrils. And uh, I am getting paid for the time off. So oh, that's that nice. Is good.
1: Yeah. So it could be so much worse. <laughs> Meanwhile, my mother-in-law went to the ER over the weekend because she had a, a heart arrhythmia. So that's been tracked down. She's on some medication feeling a lot better. This is a woman who has beat ms diabetes and a rare blood cancer that is now in remission so you know a survivor she's going to get through this just fine too needed to be dealt with so that was stressful Uh, and then of course that was on top of the power going out and internet going out from hurricane zeta Mm
0: -hmm. yeah
1: which is why we're recording on monday instead of last thursday
0: because, (laughs) because thursday
1: i did not have internet My parents were without power for close to 72 hours. Oh, dang. Uh. They actually drove over and dropped off all of the stuff from their freezer in our freezer just in time to get home and have the power finally come back. Oh, Oh,
2: no. (laughs) Uh. So we
1: had to give that back. But it was good because my daughter's Girl Scout like nuts and magazine subscription stuff came in. So we had a delivery of like nuts that they had ordered. To give to them. So, you know, oh, nice. kind of worked out when we gave it back. <laughs> Here's
0: more food than you gave us originally.
1: <laughs> I could finally give my dad the copy of Sailing to Serantium that I'd gotten him for his birthday. <laughs> so, you know, that was, but that was a thing. Let me tell you, there were outages everywhere. It was really bad, and that was the fastest storm I've seen in a long time. It, like, as we record, I believe it's hitting England. Oh, wow. Wow. Like, it, it is, it raced up the gulf, raced across the U.S., and has raced across the Atlantic. It's very strange.
0: Okay, so Zeta the Turbo yeah. Storm continues its <laughs> rampage across the globe.
1: So yeah, it's been it's been a thing. Yeah, but Halloween was decent, all things considered. You know, what we could do if it was fun. We,
2: we set up on the roof. We actually had a great time, and we're probably going to do it next year, too. We had about 10 feet of eaves troughing, you 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 Americans call it gutter which is so gross to me cuz gutters are like on the ground what the
1: they run to the ground thus
2: but they're not all cause see we differentiate gutters are the things along the side of the road but eaves troughing oh. is is troughs along the eaves
0: no
1: th- so, those are those are ditches
2: no the ditch is the big one beside the road
1: they're all big ones around here they're, okay it's just a ditch
2: Okay, we we occasionally there, have like no little, little tiny little gutters, and then there's like yeah, that's the not really a thing in the that we have in our front yard. Okay, well, anyway, we had a at whole least bunch not of the parts dropping. of it that
0: Grant and I live in, apparently.
2: <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, we I mean to be fair, here either because our roads are never ever good. But so we had a bunch of eavesdropping going from the roof to the ground, and uh, held up by struts, and uh, we all dressed up as owls and had a good time.
1: That's delightful. <laughs> it, That's really it good. It was really fun. Yeah, we actually did get to see my parents, uh, which was nice because we've always gone trick or treating with my parents every year around the neighborhood. This year, uh, we did a couple of like drive-through trick or treat things at various churches. You know, the kids got a bunch of candy. Uh, one of them was giving out just a preset bag of. 100 pieces of candy which was pretty great because we're super excited for that one as you might imagine but it was actually (laughs) really nice like the church made it really fun they had uh, one of those little like tiny radio things where you could tune into the radio station Mm. you know like right there in the parking lot Mm -hmm. and they were because it was a. a, it's kind of I'm not going to say a mega church but it's a fairly large church and so they had a big line and a big through the big parking lot. And they're doing stuff like, hey, if you've got a superhero in your car, honk your horn, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So it, it was just kind of making it fun. That's, it that's cool. Nice. Yeah, it was good. But anyway, we went over there and then we're, we were all masked and outside on the porch or the the new deck that my dad has built actually over the summer and fall. And uh, the kids went through their candy pile, taking out things that, you know. Eh, the four-year-old can't eat oh no eight-year-old's allergic to this you know re divvying up candy
0: Ah, candy trading i remember that from my own childhood
1: candy trading and you know like oh okay we we have a standing rule of like okay kiddo if there's anything you are allergic to we will trade you one for one with some other candy that we know you can eat you know so yeah yeah you know you're never getting cheated it's here's one for one a trade of like skittles you love skittles for you know reese's you can't have peanut butter okay cool whatever
2: I'm very glad that I had few childhood allergies the only one I, I yes. have um, is uh, watermelon flavoring really yeah it gives me really bad headaches similar to the ones that I get when I smell alcohol
1: huh there you go kind of there you go yeah
2: but they were easy to trade for because every like everybody likes watermelon flavoring I don't know anybody that doesn't like it I like it but I just it just makes me feel very bad. <laughs>
1: You know, I, I actually dislike regular watermelon. Watermelon-flavored stuff is kind of middle-of-the-road for me, but it's not awful. Hmm. I like yeah. both. But I, I'm weird.
0: Well, yeah. Fruit flavorings, yay.
1: <laughs> we have kind of a big topic tonight. We're going to be talking about Eden and the Garden of Eden. And little sneak peek those are slightly different. But first we have a Patreon question to get to. Before we get to Patreon though, I want to mention something important. We've had a couple of requests over the years for ways to do one-time donations to our podcast. And we have not really set that up until now. We now are on Coffee, uh, which is ko-fi.com. If you go to our website, there's a little buy us a coffee button that you may have seen on other sites that is now there at stgcast.org. Uh, or you can go to ko saving the savingthegame. If you want to send us uh, anything that way, you can do so, or you can set up recurring donations through ko as well. Um, I don't think we're necessarily going to be cross-posting everything that we post to Patreon through Ko-fi. Uh, that's more Peter's bailiwick anyway. But just be aware, if Kofi takes off, we'll happily kind of, you know, work both of those. But if you really desperately want to send us a one-time donation you can do so. We got one very generous one that we are very thankful yeah. for and are trying to figure out how to use. So we appreciate that.
0: Yeah, that was kind of an unexpected uh, podcast windfall.
1: Highlight. So, yeah. <laughs> a highlight for the week, frankly. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. All right. I'm going to roll this die and we're going to pick a question. So this is from Tom Stevens. This is an interesting one and I like this. What is the strangest slash weirdest slash most difficult game mechanic you've ever had to deal with in a game.
2: All game mechanics immediately leave my brain. I don't know anything about gaming ever. Difficult game mechanic I've ever had to deal with in game.
0: Put me on the spot here. The stress mechanic in Darkest Dungeon.
2: Oh, Mm. oh gosh. I know. Yep. And that could be easily applied to tabletop and it's going to be applied to tabletop fairly soon because they are coming out with a board game.
1: Yep. I always just treated that as, oh, it's a different hit point track. But yeah, it's it is complicated and difficult. I eventually got to
0: that point. But like the first ten hours that I spent with Darkest Dungeon when that was implemented, it was just like, What is this? How do I defend against this? You know? And it's like you you build up the skills and you learn it, and I have beaten Darkest Dungeon, and yada yada. But it's yeah, it was it was definitely kind of an out of left field thing the first time I I encountered that. So
1: Sure. Sure.
0: I guess an honorable mention for Tabletop, just the whole way you set up a game of In a Wicked Age, where you've got all these characters that are just, like, pointed at each other. You know how we've talked, you know, with Kimmy a while ago about, like, pregame tools and stuff like that? It's like, In a Wicked yeah. Age has that baked into the system. You, like, create Neat. the setting, the characters, and a bunch of, like, conflicts, and go. <laughs> I don't know that I've been in the right headspace to actually play a game of that in probably five years at least, but uh, it was certainly interesting when I played it at the con that time.
2: I I think I'm going to have to kind of wuss out here and just go with the entire crunch of Harnmaster. It's so, so in-depth, as in your birthday matters. Like, there are... I think I'll narrow it down to the birthday mechanics in in Harnmaster, which unfortunately never came up for me. I've only ever played a couple of, of sessions of it before, but yeah, it's just such a crunchy game. There are so many things to keep track of. So yeah, my sort of cop out ish answer is uh, all of Harnmaster.
0: <laughs> all right, this is this is like Chekhov's mechanics discussion. What I, I have to hear? How does your birthday matter? I
2: don't remember. Oh, no. Basically, you okay. don't like, here's the thing. It's been a long time since I've played. All I remember properly is the game master saying, all right, the moon is in this position. It is this month, this day, this hour. Is it your, is it your character's birthday that you just rolled up? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, okay, we don't have to deal with that then. I'm like, what? I think it has to do with like, like sort of like boons or, or like. Good things can happen on your birthday, bad things can happen on your birthday, if the weather is in such and such a quadrant of the galaxy, I don't know, it's so very crunchy, and I just, the the thing that was just so, so befuddling to me was just like, is it your character's birthday, we need to know for the sake of the entire game, like,
1: 90 simulationist crunch yeah it's like
0: well there's a 364 out of 365 chance that the answer is no so let's go with that yeah, yeah. except it's probably different because it's Harn and Harn isn't earth ah
2: it's so Roll
1: much. 1d 400 yeah yeah this one i i have talked about this game previously i know but it's been a long time there was a game with some roommates and roommates friends that I got into that was being run by a particular guy who was I guess their friend, sort of. It was based on DD35. And it was absolutely a DD35. I like all my thing all the things I like and I'm going to cram them into this game sort of game. Like, oh it's the Forgotten Realms, but it's set on a Halo world, like in Halo. And it's like, oh sure, whatever. So I was like, cool, I'll pay a play a cleric. This is the game where the guy is like, okay, cool, well, here's uh, a bunch of stuff about your cleric, and here's a bunch of uh, equipment that raises all your stats by ridiculous amounts, and what's your starting wisdom? 60? Cool, go with it. That's 6-0, not 16. Eh, Which is quite a lot, and very much breaks D&D. And because this guy wanted ridiculously overpowered characters, he also wanted fights to last more than half a second. He invented a mechanic... Of action points, because he'd heard of action points once. So Okay, cool. Uh, Everybody gets uh, a thousand action points a level. And you can spend as many of them as you want uh, on any roll. They add one. Okay. Well, that's a pain in the butt to keep track of. Sure. Oh, all of of my monsters get them as well. Art thou kidding me? (laughs) If anybody has ever dealt with, say, critical fumble tables, you know that mechanics that are wildly swingy and are applied equally to player characters and disposable monsters in a game like D&D, do not favor the players. No, not at all. Yeah, because I have, you know, every character has a thousand points to spend from level to level. Monsters are expected to last for one encounter and have a thousand points to spend for that encounter each. Having said that, I am not entirely convinced that the this particular GM was really even keeping track of hit points. He was like, Well, combat should probably go five to seven rounds, and then combat should end. Because that's about how long combats go. Oh, that's an eternity in 3-5. <sighs> that is an eternity in DD 3-5. Imagine it being an eternity with level fifteen to eighteen characters, all of some of whom have, you know, core stats over a hundred. Oh no. Okay. Most of the spellcasters ended up taking the maximize spell feat as one of their multitude of free feats because just having static numbers rather than having to roll dice on their spells made combat far faster. Hmm. My character died in the third session. I stood up, went to the kitchen and said, I'm free now. And that <laughs> is not a joke. I said that out loud. You know, came back and there was like, OK, we resurrect your character. He refuses. He's happy in heaven. But no, I'm out. Good luck, <laughs> and I <laughs> noped
0: out. <laughs> he's he's run screaming into the night. It's the middle of the night. <laughs> How does that work? He
1: has run screaming into the outer planes. Yeah. <laughs> it was not uncommon for multiple characters to die because, again, bad bad combat math. And well, this seems dramatic, but yes, it was a it was. I want this to play out exactly as I see it in my head, but I want to make all of you go through all of the roles anyway. <laughs> and we're going to add maybe four or five times the amount of roles a normal D&D game would have. Which is still a lot. Yes. It is a significant number. So, yeah, that was that was the strangest, or I'm going to say the worst, strange, strangest, like most foreign. The first time I encountered it was probably the Jenga Tower in Dread. Yeah, but that's a good strange. It's good, and I don't want to talk about it because it's great. Like, that's that's not to complain about. That's just... Keep it up. Yeah. That's, Dread is good for several reasons.
0: Yeah. It's it's, anyway. it's kind of a toss up as to whether the leading questionnaire or the Jenga tower is the real piece of genius in there.
1: But yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there, it's possible for there to be two. Yeah, it is. Okay. Good question, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. If you want to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash saving the game. It helps a great deal. It really does. We're kind of close to being able to do a little bit more. With the show every month, and I'm excited about that. So, yeah, thank you for everybody who's kept supporting us. I know times are tough right now for a lot of us. Really appreciate you guys doing that. It helps so much. Let's do scripture.
0: Our first piece of scripture is Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have Isaiah 51, 3. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing.
1: Ezekiel, chapter 28, verses 13 to 15. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite and emerald, topaz, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones." You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you.
2: And Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse." The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever.
1: We are talking about Eden tonight. And uh, by that, well, you know, when I started this outline... I thought we were going to specifically talk about the Garden of Eden, the literal biblical Garden of Eden. It turns out it's a little more complicated than that, but that is what we are talking about in terms of the popular image. Now, of course, we're going to be talking about some of the tropes of the Garden of Eden that can be applied to other idyllic worlds or lands. I, Peter and I and Jenny uh, have all played a number of like 4X games in space that are all like, yeah, this is a, a garden world or an Eden world. Yeah. The term, that's just kind of what it's come to mean. Eden itself, uh, the word most likely comes from Assyrian and from the same root as the Assyrian word idinu, which means field. There's also a slightly later connection to the Hebrew root dn, which is connected to words meaning luxuries or abundance or pleasure, something like that. So, you know, uh, there's actually a translation of the Bible that re- that doesn't use the term garden of Eden. It says a garden of pleasure hmm. or garden of pleasures. Which one? It was like a, a hyphenated French name. Fair enough. Uh, two different people. <laughs> not not a translation that I'd be familiar with. Okay, I saw it in passing. No, it, but just worth noting. Let's talk real quick about the literal biblical Garden of Eden. Obviously, this is connected to the origin story of humans in Genesis. And whether or not you believe that this is literal biblical history or a symbolic story about human origins and the fall and man's relationship with God, it's a very powerful tale and has really become embedded in popular culture and understanding.
0: Broad strokes for anybody who hasn't read the early chapters of Genesis recently, just so we can get this kind of down for the audience. God creates the universe, then the earth. Uh, God populates the earth with the myriad of life that lives here. God creates humanity. God creates a special garden for humans to live in close to God's presence. This garden includes, as we read in our scripture, the tree of life, which grants immortality, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, self-explanatory and forbidden. There is a honeymoon period where Adam and Eve are obedient to God. Humans are in charge of taking care of the garden and are allowed to eat from any of the trees except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Serpent comes into the garden, tempts Eve, she eats from the tree of knowledge, gives the fruit to Adam, who also eats it. Adam and Eve realize that they're naked and hide from God. God
1: sees what they have done and exiles them from the garden. Most Christians probably think that's where the Garden of Eden stops mattering. But it turns out it's mentioned a fair bit in the Bible because guess what? It's a very popular touchstone for a lot of analogies, right? All the other bits of scripture we've read are talking about the Garden of Eden. So, Ezekiel, for example, mentions a mountain of God with fiery stones. And that's one of those things that indicates that the popular understanding among Jews of what the Garden of Eden was and contained was still being developed even after Genesis, the, the original Genesis story, had been sort of formalized, right? There were other things being added to it. While we're talking about other
0: parts of the Bible, I do like that, like, that's That passage from Revelation is at the end of Revelation, and it's a reference back to the Tree of Life in Genesis. That's yeah, pretty exactly.
1: cool, you know? And the people who, you know, the early Christians who really sort of finalized the form of the Christian Bible did, were very aware of that that parallelism, to be sure. Yeah. Let's talk Midrash and Talmud. I went digging through a few Midrash and summaries of Midrash. Uh, Midrash are rabbinical stories about the parts of scripture and specifically, you know, the Torah. Some of these I found just like summaries of, I couldn't find all of the ones that were being referred to available for free online, but some of them I was able to find. Talmud is sort of, is Jewish law and sometimes done sort of as a question answer. At least all the ones that are relevant here are sort of done as a question answer sort of thing. Like, hey, how does this work? Well, another rabbi answers, it's this. And that sort of becomes law. And we're specifically talking about A midrash that doesn't have to do with the law and is just sort of there for debate, which is kind of interesting. It's, hey, this is just for discussion and further understanding. It doesn't have any direct bearing on law and how we should act, which is kind of neat. Here's the first thing that startled me. According to all major Jewish traditions, there are two gardens of Eden. One of them is terrestrial. It's a verdant and fertile garden. The other is a celestial garden of Eden that's a resting place for the righteous and their immortal souls. Rabbinical writing doesn't do a whole lot to distinguish these, and at least one source claims that, quote, the Garden of Eden and Heaven were created by one word from God.
0: Hmm. Which
1: is interesting in and of itself. They're almost the same thing, right? But not exactly the same. What's interesting, too, is that Eden is not the same thing as the Garden of Eden, according to Jewish sources. It's Eden is much bigger. Genesis chapter two, verse 10 is cited as evidence for this quote. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The Talmud. Yeah. See, so logically, the garden must be contained within Eden for Eden to have a river to flow out of it. All right. I'm following you here. Yeah. The Talmud, and I, I, I'm i not going to pronounce this it correctly, I apologize, it's Taanit uh, 10a, includes a bit of logic that's dependent on verses here and in other parts of the Talmud, and that dedu- the deduction there is that the entire rest of the world is one-sixtieth the size of the Garden of Eden. Uh, okay. Huh. Now, there's... Yeah. So, Eden... The Garden of Eden is much bigger than the rest of the world. Eden is much bigger than the Garden of Eden. There's a subsequent entry entry that says, you know, the Garden is one-sixtieth the size of this greater Eden, and Eden is one-sixtieth the size of Gehenna. The same entry ends with, and some say Gehenna has no measure, and some say that Eden has no measure. So, already that's something kind of gameable, right? This Garden of Eden is a holy place but it is not the holiest of places it's this like it's the vestibule into it and it's big and it's big but hidden now to be clear we are talking this is not a physical garden of eden that's being talked about this is that celestial garden of eden it's on a higher plane is sort of how it's described in a lot of these texts it's not trying to exist terrestrially on earth being 60 times the size of the rest of the earth, right? And some of this is somewhat metaphorical as well. Jewish and Christian scholars have had a lot of serious debates about uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 10, and its subsequent verses, trying to identify the four rivers that are mentioned in those verses, and thus figure out exactly where the Garden of Eden was located. There are a bunch of suggestions. Some of the more reputable ones place it at the head of the Persian Gulf, in southern Iraq, where the Tigris and Euphrates reach the sea, or in Armenia. Most do just consider it a mythological place, or again, a place that doesn't really exist per se in the terrestrial plane anymore, or is just kind of locked away, something like that. Okay. There's one interesting little bit that I saw. The Midrash HaGadol, which is a 13th century Midrash from Saudi Arabia, says, according to what I could find, quote, Eden is a unique place on Earth, but no creature is permitted to know its exact location. In the future, during the Messianic period, God will reveal to Israel the path to Eden. And I mention all this because A, it's very interesting, and B, all of these seem extremely gameable to me. Yeah. They kind of add what sounds... To Protestant Christian ears, namely mine, a a certain mythological element that is really fascinating and give something that, you know, I I can be like, hey, so Garden of Eden, here's a twist you may not know. And that's pretty exciting, right? Yeah, very. I I suppose before
0: we really kind of continue on, we should mention some other kind of less um, scriptural or, you know, explicitly religious uses of this, because we kind of alluded to them at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like we kind of said at the beginning, you'll, you'll see this a lot in forex, you know, strategy games. You know, you'll get the idea of an Eden or Garden World. Um, it's a place where, you know, maybe not a species
1: is from, but it would be ideal for that species to inhabit. Often it is specifically built with habitation in mind by some advanced species.
2: Yeah. Uh, occasionally, you'll sort of see it as a like an untouched place with pure inhabitants you see that i think you know what i think there's actually a terrible star trek episode about it original series i'm pretty sure
0: i mean there's terrible star trek episodes about a lot of things so
2: <laughs> they had to violate prime directive
0: of course they did cuz it's star trek
2: uh, basically untouched perfect to near perfect planets
0: one of the one of the things that you will also see is kind of like the I guess what I'm going to call the bait and switch world, like a, a false Eden almost, where it's like, mm. this looks like a perfect planet to like our probes and our scientific instruments. And then we actually try and settle this place and find out that may not be the case. There's a, a couple of notable examples in Dennis E. Taylor's Bobaverse series that are like this. And it's, it's not like I, I want to distinguish here between like your kind of sci-fi horror kind of a thing like aliens or something where it's like this whole planet is covered in monsters they're going to eat us all and just like oh it really wasn't quite as um, good as we were hoping like there there's two particular planets that i can think of in that series that kind of come to mind there's one that's fairly good but the gravity is higher than earth and if you just think about that it's just like it's just kind of exhausting to live there
1: Mm -hmm. And then
0: um, the other one is it's, you know, it's very lush and stuff, but it's got a lot of very, like, aggressive kind of insect analogs that can be, you know, dangerous in the same way that any nasty earth insects can be. You know, they're parasitic or venomous or whatever. But it's not, you know, like xenomorphs. It's just, you know, the ecology here is hostile.
1: (laughs) Mm. Right, yeah.
0: And then I think one of my favorite examples from a... Um, an actual gaming center is. Are you guys very familiar with Galarian, the uh, the kind of the Pathfinder official setting? Nope. <laughs> yeah, I have heard of it. Okay. I
2: I, ha- I actually hadn't. I legit had not until this this very day. I
0: think it might actually be Galarian. I I however it's pronounced. I've heard Galarian. Yeah. Okay. The the history of Galarian has something that they called the First World, which was this very lush. Kind of overflowing nature, kind of world, peopled by fae, and then kind of the current reality is kind of stacked on top of it, described as being kind of metaphysically behind the the regular world. So it's like an Eden-like thing, but also full of dangerous fae, and it's kind of there, but kind of not. It's it's cool. very interesting. Uh, you, you run into it a bit in—actually, um, more than a bit. You run into it quite a bit in the uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker game, which is kind of where I ran into this bit of
1: lore. I, I've never read it, but I wonder if Earth Dawn has something similar. It would not shock me. There's a lot of stuff in that world. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that's cool. Yeah. I think we, we all kind of understand, if for nothing else, pop culture and just the general cultural awareness of the Garden of Eden, what this is. Right. Let's talk about how we can use this garden in gaming. This is the last thing that I found, and I love this so much. It's so good, okay? So I was doing research on this, and I kept seeing references to Alexand- Alexander, King Alexander the Great, finding the Garden of Eden. I'm like, what is this? I've never heard this story. So the I cannot trace the provenance of this story, Beyond Gertrude Landa's 1919 book, Jewish Fairy Tales and Legends, the preface from the author, Gertrude Landa, says that this is a retelling of stories from the Talmud and Midrash, as well as later Jewish stories. I don't know what those sources are, but this is kind of a a kid's version of these stories, but written in 1919. The one I'm going to read you part of is from King Alexander's Adventures, which is a big section of this book, and it tells legendary exploits and adventures of Alexander the Great. And it reads like other heroic tales of great kings, like the King Arthur legends, but from a specifically Jewish perspective and, again, sort of a kid's version of it. Now, 1919 kids, (laughs) which, you know, (laughs) sounds very different 100 years later, but it's cool. This is public domain. I will link to the Gutenberg version of this in the show notes or have Peter do it, I should say. (laughs) It's public domain. It should be just fine to read on air. And I'm going to read just a little bit of it, okay? Because this is the story of Alexander finding the Garden of Eden and not being permitted inside. All right. And this is just super cool. And it is chock full of awesome things to game. Alexander found himself in a new and beautiful land. There were no signs of human beings, nor of animals, and a river of the clearest water he had ever seen flowed gently along. It was full of fish, which the soldiers caught quite easily. But a strange thing happened when, after having cut up the fish ready for cooking, they took them to the river to clean them. All the fish came to life again. The pieces joined together and darted away in the water. At first Alexander would not believe this, but after he had made an experiment himself, he said, Let all who are wounded bathe in this river, for surely it will cure every ill. This must be the river of life which flows from paradise. He determined to follow the stream to its source and find the Garden of Eden. As he marched along, the valley through which the stream flowed became narrower and narrower until at last only one person could pass. Alexander continued his journey on foot with a few of his generals walking behind. Mountains, thickly covered with greenest verdure, towered up on either side. The silent river narrowed until it seemed a mere streak of silver flowing gently along, and there was a delicious odor in the air. At length, where the mountains on either side met, Alexander's path was barred by a great wall of rock. From a tiny fissure the river of life trickled forth, and beside it was a door of gold beautifully ornamented. Before this door, Alexander paused. Then, drawing his sword, he struck the gate of paradise with the hilt. There was no answer, and Alexander knocked a second time. Again there was no reply, and a third time Alexander knocked with some impatience. Then the door slowly opened, and a figure in white stood in the entry. In its hand it held a skull made of gold with eyes of rubies. "'Who knocks so rudely at the gate of paradise?' asked the angel." "'I, Alexander the Great of Macedon, the conqueror of the world,' answered Alexander proudly. "'I demand admittance to paradise. Hast thou brought peace to the whole world, that thou sayest thou art its conqueror?' demanded the angel. Alexander made no answer. "'Only the righteous who bring peace to mankind may enter paradise alive,' said the angel gently. Alexander hung his head abashed, then, in a voice broken with emotion, he begged that at least he should be given a memento of his visit. The angel handed him the skull, saying, Take this, and ponder over its meaning. The angel vanished, and the golden door closed. The skull was so heavy that, with all his great strength, Alexander could scarcely carry it. When he placed it in a balance to ascertain its weight, he found that it was heavier than all his treasures. "'None of his wise men could explain this mystery, and so Alexander sought out a Jew among his soldiers, one who had been a student with the rabbis. Taking a handful of earth, the Jew placed it over the eyes, and the skull was then as light as air.' "'The meaning is plain,' said the Jew. "'Not until the human eye is covered with earth, in the grave, is it satisfied. Not until after death can man hope to enter paradise.' Alexander was anxious to hasten away from that strange region, but many of his soldiers declared that they would settle down by the banks of the River of Life. Next morning, however, the river had vanished. Where all had been beautiful was now only a desolate plain, bounded by bare, rocky mountains reaching to the clouds. With heavy hearts, Alexander's men began their march back. Wild. It's neat, I almost want to
2: say that I've heard that before. Not like that exact telling of it, but that I have heard... Some version of this tale before.
1: I never had.
2: This is a very old memory for me. This is feeling like like when I learned about the apocrypha in in Sunday school when I was very very young, kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's obviously a, an old story. Mm-hmm. It's a cool story, mm-hmm. and there's so much interesting gameable mythic stuff in this. Yeah,
2: right? yeah,
1: I I love it. It's one of my new favorite things. It's definitely going on my wish list for Christmas, this this little book. <laughs> it's pretty great. So, yeah, that's think about how much gameable stuff is in there. You have this river of life that's flowing out of the garden that then mysteriously disappears. You know, you find this door and, you know, you're not permitted entry. You have Alexander knocking on the the door of paradise, the golden door to the Garden of Eden with the, the hilt of his sword and then knocking it again. And then as the, the story says, and the third time he knocked with some impatience. Yeah, a turn of phrase there.
2: Yeah, it's also a good example of a physical puzzle, like with the skull and the dirt and stuff like that. You, it, like, yeah. when, when you go to and you, you come across a, a sphinx and it gives you a riddle, it's a verbal riddle and it's not as, as tangible as like And uh, there's a skull and it's really heavy. Why? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it's like, take this and ponder over its meaning.
2: Yeah. It's a lot more open-ended in some ways. It
1: is. And, you know, to be sure in the story, it's like, oh, well, you have, again, a Jew interpreting the meaning of this thing, right? Very Daniel-like or Joseph-like. It's nonetheless very cool and you're right the physicality of it is so much more interesting than I had a dream Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right at least I I say interesting so different and so gameable yeah yeah it's super cool and There's a lot in here that I just absolutely love. And it does kind of have that idea of like, hey, you could find this for this very mystic sort of encounter. That's why this feels very, you know, Arthurian legend to me. It's this strange place Mm -hmm. that you find that then no one else can find again, but you had this encounter there. Right? Very questing beast kind of Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or Percival kind of.
0: Mm. Or even vaguely unknown armies-esque, which probably got it from those legends.
2: Unknown Armies is primed for taking a story that has been softened for children and making it sharp again kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's very good. So let's talk about what we can take away from the Garden of Eden and turn into gameable things and what we would do with those in games. The first thing is a place made for people to inhabit. Ringworld's kind of...
2: I was Play just thinking, Ring Worlds,
1: Halo, you know, because we touched on that earlier. It's very similar. <laughs> I think
0: one of the one of the things that's kind of interesting about Eden is you, you get like the casting out, which references thorns and weeds, which implies that they weren't there before. We we haven't really touched on this a whole bunch because there's been a lot of other cool stuff, but Eden was a responsibility. You are supposed to take care of this garden, so this would have been you know, but without like thorns and weeds, this is going to be. A big job, but probably also very satisfying and fulfilling.
2: I think also my favorite part of it is it was a collaborative effort with God. Mm-hmm. God said, here are all these things. You get to name them, which is honestly my my favorite part of the entire story of the Garden of Eden. Here are these things. You get to name them and sort of not exactly decide what they do, but decide what they mean to you. That's very
1: cool to me. Yes, uh, and there's that a whole idea of being co-creators with God. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Which I think that's actually, oh, that's actually a really, really good theme for like terraforming and and building space stations and, and exploration and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting thing because we're sort of doing that in my Star Wars game right now is we're sort of taking this mining colony that rebelled against... Uh, One of the corporations in the corporate sector in the expanded universe and trying to make it independent and maybe join the the alliance, but at least not be under the imperial (laughs) heel, basically. And there's definitely, you know, like it's not exactly building up from scratch, but I have played a lot of build up kingdom kind of games. And the idea of doing that not as like a responsibility or as a a competition, but as like co-creating in a religious context, would be super interesting. You know something else that it kind of brings to mind?
0: I've I've been sitting here kind of listening to you talk and racking my brain about this, and it's like, there's almost kind of like a mystical horseshoe theory kind of a thing here. At one starting point, you've got like, this is pure magic, it's pure supernatural, you know, it's just divine power, you know, there's, there's no other explanation for it that exists or could ever be needed or desired, right? And then you kind of go through this whole big band of technological advancement and you kind of curve back around to this point where you get to kind of the Clark's third law, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. And
1: and the corollary, any magic or any technology distinguishable from magic is insufficiently advanced. Yes.
0: (laughs) And (laughs) you've got, you know, you're back to like this co-creation kind of a thing because now you're talking about terraforming worlds and stuff. And if you're if you're doing that specifically to make a place maybe not only like habitable but also like sacred in some way or holy in some way, you know you're like purifying. Let's we've all played Stellaris at least a little bit, right? Let's let's say you take like a tomb world where you know there used to be life, something horrible happened, there's not anymore. You purify that, you make it so there's life there again, people settle there again.
2: And then uh, another ancient civilization declares war on you because you messed with their tomb world.
1: Yeah. My brother-in-law has a podcast about this, kind of. He has a podcast on Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy. Oh,
2: I, I have some of that right, literally right next to me right now.
1: Oh, yeah, uh, and it's wonderful. Kim Stanley Robinson's a great guy. So my, my sister and <laughs> her husband actually got to go kayaking with him, That's so which cool. was nice. Kind of, I know it's great. I'm very jealous, but yeah, uh, marooned on Mars with Matt and Hillary. Hillary's a, a coworker of his. Go give that a listen. I'll put a link to the a link to that podcast, and it's pretty great. So yeah, give, give it a good listen. That's a podcast about terraforming Mars. So,
0: okay. there you go. yeah, I, I was just kind of get back to what I was at before we d- digressed. Um, you, you get this kind of in certain types of like very advanced sci fi, this kind of renewed sense of the miraculous or the sacred that kind of comes back around, which is really interesting to me because it's like there's this this section in the middle where it's like it's all skepticism and you know nihilism and oh you know we've outgrown religion and stuff and then you start curving back around and it's like except for maybe we haven't and maybe this was actually really valuable and maybe there was something here after all mm.
1: and there are a lot of sci-fi stories that are kind of about hey we ha- we went out into the universe and built ourselves new edens and then some other fall happened and now we can't get back to Earth or, mm-hmm. you know, we're we're all disconnected from each other or things have happened. Yeah, One of the early Fate games, Diaspora, which is one I have, it kind of has that hmm. as its premise that you're on a small subset of plant, uh, systems that are connected to each other through warp gates, but the larger network has collapsed. Even Warhammer 40K had this in its history. It's like, yeah, you know, the reason there's all of these planets that are settled is because humanity went out among the stars and settled them all and then everything terrible in the 40k universe happened a pretty popular thing because it gives you a universe full of people but then conflict within that right again a fall other gameable stuff you've grant
0: you've got an interesting example here the secret hidden origin of man and apparently the assassin's creed series touches on this yeah yeah so uh, have you ever played assassin's creed i've played a couple of them but i've never finished any of them i think i made it about three quarters of the way through black flag and that was about the furthest i ever made in one of the games
1: so this is mostly an assassin's creed 2 okay thing they did some and you had to go get like all the secret lore stuff to to see this all right okay one of the premises underpinning the major conflict of the series is that there are these ancient artifacts That are super powerful because they're alien artifacts that uh, give power to sway populations. And that's what the Templars use, right? Okay. And you are an assassin fighting the Templars. The Templars are this ancient order that tries to find this stuff. And a lot of this stuff, they're apples of Eden because they are little things from Eden, which appears to be, it's never like explicitly stated, but it appears to be where humanity originated, namely some sort of alien settlement on Earth. Hmm. where humans there were there was a pair of humans that escaped from it whether they were slaves or something it's not entirely clear
2: sounds like a weird extension of battlestar galactica
1: (laughs) i kinda it's the same idea of secret you know the secret alien origins of man which was a very like 70s concept right it was very popular uh that mystic alien you know alien life seeding earth kind of thing right (laughs) <laughs> Every other uh, example of the Elliptony hut in an episode of Kartos, yes. <laughs> so many of those, yes, exactly. And I don't feel too bad spoiling a game series that's more than 10 years old at this point. Right? Yeah. That that was one of the conceits, and it, it was never important to the gameplay or anything. But, you know, if you really dug into the lore, it's like, oh, okay, this is what's really going on, is you're trying to stop these bad guys for in contemporary times, in this case like, you know, Renaissance Italy, I played most of the AC2 series and loved it a great deal. It was I very heard good. that was actually kind of the peak of the whole franchise. Like, yeah, I mean, Black Flag, I've heard was very good as you know a pirate game. I don't know that it was an amazing on a Assassin's mechanical Creed game. level.
0: It was fantastic. I did not care for the protagonist as a person at all.
1: Fair enough. <laughs> and three was just sort of like we're supposed to be jumping off buildings. You put us in like an unsettled wilderness. This is kind of dull. So, yeah, it's just, it, it needed, it needs the right setting. But it's just, it's an interesting idea. And I I threw in Assassin's Creed as an example, but that secret origin of man is very common in a lot of sci-fi stories of a particular bent where it's like, oh, you know, there was a secret place on earth that man came from, but it wasn't, you know, the Garden of Eden is a, as a artifact, the the story is an artifact of this alien settlement or whatever created man there secretly, that kind of thing. And so finding that in a game, you're not necessarily going to find the biblical Garden of Eden, but you're going to find something else that is interesting, you know, an alien spaceship or whatever. Um, you guys have seen Trigon, right? Not all yeah. the way through. Okay. The ships that land on the planet that create gardens... And, you know, know, they call crash landed and humans sort of came down alongside these crashing ships onto this desert planet. Very much a Garden of Eden idea of like, this is where we came from and we had to, we sort of got kicked out because it couldn't support us anymore. But there was this place that very briefly supported us. Same sort of idea.
2: Yeah. And then you get into some other weird spiritual symbolism with Vash the Stampede and um, his brother. Sort of representing, I, I think, sort of representing a contrast between the fall of man and the innocence of Eden, kind of thing.
1: You could certainly take it that route. You um, definitely sort of a creator-destroyer type, you know, a, a demiurge versus. You know, like there's a weird Gnostic thing going on there. Maybe if you really wanted to draw that parallel, it's it's a great series. I love it, but there's some weirdness in there that's cool, oh, yeah. but. Weird.
2: and it's weirder in the books
1: <laughs> i am not even slightly surprised speaking of oh boy
0: before we get too far afield the idea of a fall is very 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 gameable oh
1: yes yeah. it is
2: it's a very common element of fiction
1: yeah yeah for very good reason it's an mm-hmm. amazing way to start a story the lack of one is interesting, too.
0: You mentioned that there's a an unfallen civilization in the Space Trilogy that behaves in very different ways from humanity and stuff, so.
1: Well, yes. Yeah, it's very cool. C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, I strongly recommend that anybody who hasn't read it do so. It's Christian science fiction, basically, uh, before a lot of the common trappings of science fiction. It's very fantastic. Like, it is very much fantasy in space. It's almost unfair to call it science fiction until the third book. Paralandra is gorgeous and heartbreaking, almost poetic. Out of the silent planet is what we're talking about here with this idea of, like, oh, yeah, Earth is the only planet in the solar system that fell. All the others are still populated or could be populated. And they're all kind of sitting there going, man, what is up with Earth? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody leaves Earth and it's like... Well, this is a bit of a problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
1: <laughs> it's a bit of a okay. Um, you two talk, and there's one guy who's evil and one guy who's good, and they sort of talk. And it, it's pretty interesting. Uh, there, there's a lot to it. But that idea of, again, a fall is there's so much you can do with this. We talked about it a little bit with. You know, space stuff. I've seen. I vaguely recall reading a story where the fall is sort of represented as a literal fall out of like a floating garden hidden up above the clouds, kind of thing. You know, down to down to earth. That idea. I think that was in. I've seen that in in a lot of video games as well. You know, sort of. I mean, we're we're
0: starting to reference like Paradise Lost here with the fall of Lucifer. You Mm. know, like
1: a. a Is it even fair to reference Paradise Lost? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that is literally what it's about. Yeah. Okay. Fair. But it's like
0: that. Yeah. The the, the like the physical and the metaphysical falls happening at the same time, and it's and,
1: and Milton is yeah. drawing that very explicit parallel between you know the fall of man and the fall of Lucifer yeah. that kind of thing. Right. That he's very explicitly doing that.
0: Really. Um, Milton was inspired by the Bible, the, the book that he wrote fanfic for. What it? What a show. <laughs> Things you only learn. <laughs>
1: Things you only learn here on Saving the Game. <laughs>
0: Next, you're going to tell me Dante was, and that's just going to blow my mind, too.
1: Uh, Peter, I have some news for you. You may want to sit down for this. You think I do this podcast anyway. standing up? Okay. Anyway, sorry about goofing <laughs> around. <laughs> I, there's a lot you can do with this. There is always that that tragic idea of, like, we brought the fall. Yeah. You find that, that uncorrupted civilization and just the innate sin that the explorers bring with them cause it to fall or just just the fact that they are disruptive causes it to collapse. I think we've seen this over and over in different genre fiction stories of many different genres and it's always poignant and there's a lot you can do with that. The fruit. There's a lot of symbolism wrapped up in here. There's a lot of textual analysis and biblical analysis that has gone into the fruit. In the Garden of Eden, right? The Tree of Life, the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil, so much has gone into this. But there's some very cool symbolism in something that you can eat to learn things, or something that you can eat to become immortal. So many cultures have stories of food that keeps you from dying.
0: Yeah, just kind of the, the whole food is symbolism thing, Is this is kind of one of the, the seminal tales of that. It's interesting, too, because, you know, if we're talking about parallels elsewhere in scripture, I mean, communion, you know, that's that's eating as well. Yes.
1: Right. The the magic in eating. And I say magic here, not in like a, a spell cast-y sort of way, but in that the very spiritual and symbolic sort of sort of meaning here. Yeah. Right. And it is worth pointing out, according to scripture, at least man was driven out of the garden. The tree was not, you know, the tree of life was not removed from the garden. Yeah. Right. The The very last verse of chapter three of Genesis. He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So if you're looking for a quest item, that's certainly one you could throw out there.
2: I think there's an SCP about that one.
1: Oh, I bet there is.
2: I think it's... uh Specifically about the Flaming Sword, because I'm remembering one that I listened to where uh, uh, there's this guy on YouTube called the Volgun who reads out a lot of things called SCPs. They're sort of like small, usually fairly short fiction about weird supernatural items or people or things or places. We
1: can and- put a link to the original SCP wiki in the show notes as well. It's a wonderful yeah. read. It's a great resource. Yeah, it's also oh, yeah. a great yeah. thing to look at if you're ever wondering
0: where half of the ideas for control came from. No kidding. Actually, more mm-hmm. than half, probably all.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the SCP is something that every GM that's running any kind of like weird campaign should have bookmarked and just referenced oh, yeah. periodically. There is so much good stuff in there.
2: It's big, new, weird.
1: Yeah. It is very big, new, weird. That's a great way to phrase it. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, I love the idea of that as a as a MacGuffin. That's great, and I I'm kind of intrigued by the idea of it as an SCP rather than like a purely spiritual item. Like that's a that's an interesting approach, right? And to a certain degree, you know, now that I say that out loud, sort of like how we've talked about how angels are fundamentally weird to our human senses especially like our fallen human senses i have to think that the fruit of the garden of eden would definitely have that almost eldritch feel where it's like this is something bigger than me yeah this this is there is more here than my senses can perceive
0: yeah probably even just like holding it would be a very
1: memorable experience let's just say right yeah yeah. Yeah, getting getting like a whiff of this of the smell of it, right? Like I'm um, we talked about that's this bit in the story of Alexander, right? Uh, the smell around the Garden of Eden being this delicious smell. Just that sort of sense effect would be super cool to include. Something else about the Garden of Eden here. This is a place where God walked with Adam. It's a yeah, you know, if you are looking at you know Mid- uh, Midrash and the the Talmud, this is a place that is one small part of Eden, which is created in the same word as heaven. That's a place you could go to, come into contact with angel, like with an angel. That's a place that you know there is an angel. There's a cherubim at the gates, at the very least, and even beyond that, if you can get inside. Is that a place you can go to talk to God? That's an that is an interesting mythic place. And a again, a place as a quest item.
0: Yeah. Ancientness. OK, so if we're going to if we're going to take the, the literal um, take here, Eden, in this particular sense, is the first place that is a place, basically. <laughs> like it's depending on the lore. Yeah.
1: At least recognized as a named as a place, you know. Jewish tradition actually holds that Israel was created first and then everything else around it was created. Hmm, Okay. But Eden is the first place named in scripture. Absolutely. Or at the very least, it's the first place that man ever set foot and that has tremendous mythic significance, right? Something else about this, that is the place where the names of all things comes from.
0: Yeah, yeah. I didn't think of it in those terms, but yeah,
1: that's very true. If you got a like name-based magic system, kind of the true name of things, what could you do in Eden? Yeah, could you change the name of something if you were there? Maybe so, right, and change the properties of the thing by changing the name.
2: I think that also sort of ties into a combination of ancientness and newness with planet colonization stories. Yeah, like... You are the first person. This is a new experience for you. You are the first person to set foot on this land that is old. And so it's, yeah, it's this combination of old and new.
0: Yeah, this planet was here 20 billion years before your ship ever landed on it. But now Mm -hmm. it's got life on it for the first time or something, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are definitely stories from uh, the settlers from England first arriving in the New World saying oh well you know this this place is like a garden uh, mm-hmm. you know and they were very explicitly comparing it to Eden as like a place made for human habitation yeah it's almost like the natives but... tended it like it was
2: uh huh yeah. again
1: <laughs> that's what I was about to say yeah. they did not recognize that oh hey that that's how the inhabitants farmed but that's a different conversation mm-hmm. but yeah that that recognition of like oh this is a place made for us but it's old, is it, there's a cool dichotomy there. There is also the whole innocence thing.
2: Yeah, pre-fall.
1: And you could take that two different directions. You could have it as a an unfallen place, but you could also kind of twist it to naivete.
2: This lack of knowledge.
1: Right. And that's actually kind of what Perilondra is about, the second book of mm-hmm. the C.S. Lewis Space Trilogy, because it's Venus being created and it's... You sort of have the, you know, a human and the devil there trying to talk to Eve Hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, you know, convince. It's kind of like, okay, what if the serpent was in the garden, but there was a human from like modern day earth there to talk with Eve and try and convince her not to listen. Yeah, you you do not want to listen to this guy. It's not going to go well for you. Right. And the serpent is not playing fair. (laughs) So, yeah, there's it's a wonderful book. But that's kind of what that idea is. And that, but that that eve of that world, I don't remember the exact name, is very much naive because she is so innocent that she doesn't really recognize evil. Another thing to talk about, the river of life. And uh, at the very least, the river flowing out of Eden into the garden and thus into the world. This is one of those very mythic sorts of things, and of course, kind of comes, you know, in some of the original description is. Well, the headwaters of, you know, the, these rivers must come from somewhere, and uh, it comes from this this place, right? This, this one location. Geographically, we know that that isn't the case. Fun fact, scholars have spent a ton of time trying to figure out where these are. I mentioned this earlier. There were apparently Christian scholars who went so far as to suggest that one of the rivers mentioned in Genesis chapter 2 was the Danube River. In Europe. (laughs) And John Calvin threw a little bit of a fit about that. Like, there's (laughs) no way Adam's range included all of that. Come on now. That's just ridiculous. (laughs) But yeah, people have gone to some incredible lengths to try and figure out exactly where this was and come up with some fascinating theories. Uh, One I didn't mention, by the way, there are theories that, uh, you know, Jewish ideas that Eden must be in Africa and often... Is situated on the equator hmm. for, you know, uh, symmetry purposes, right? Kind of the, the center of the Earth, as it were. Not the craziest theory I've ever heard. Well, no. Not at all. But it's it's And it's kind of got a lovely again, sort of storytelling symmetry to it, yeah. which is mm-hmm. pretty neat. But anyway, the idea of this river of life flowing out of, not just the Garden of Eden, but out of Eden into the Garden, and then into the world, that's a powerful sort of thing. We saw it in that Alexander story. But and obviously it had magical properties in that. Maybe it has magical properties in your game. But sort of like a, a Voyage of the Dawn Treader kind of thing, what would a river trip up that river look like? Pretty amazing, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, you get kind of a a river world meets Dawn Treader kind yeah. of thing going on <laughs> with that, right? Yeah. Uh, meet, you know, it meets Paradise Regained. That, that could be... An interesting thing to work with there, you know, or maybe it's a river that takes you around to other sorts of creations, even if you're playing that sort of fantasy game. We're telling that sort of story. A Forbidden place. Obviously, there's a lot of power in a place you're not permitted into, a place that is guarded. I mean, Indiana Jones handled this one, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But certainly there is that idea of breaking into a place that is forbidden by God. You know, that's that's the kind of thing where it's like, OK, I wouldn't necessarily have the player characters be the ones trying to do it, but I might have them trying to chase someone who's doing it.
0: Yeah, there's there's a concept in uh, the Anomine role playing game called a tether. It, you've I'm sure you've heard like the concept of like a thin space, you know, it's like that on steroids. <laughs> it's like a uh, a literal like portal to heaven or hell where angels and demons can ascend or descend. Uh, with significant ease compared to anywhere else on earth, and it's like Eden is like the ultimate tether just you know you you're not supposed to go there because it's like this is direct access to heaven, you
1: know, yeah, exactly and the idea of Eden as a gateway into heaven we touched on it earlier, you know a gateway at least into you know the garden and into Eden itself would be fascinating, yeah. And then, you know, what else What else is there in Eden?
0: Well, and as you have in the notes here, we're never really given specific measurements or descriptions for what Eden looked like. So you've got a lot of creative freedom here.
2: There are parts of the Bible where, like, it's like, it was this many cubits long, it had this many pounds of gold in it, and it's like, it, there are parts of the Bible that are very, very specific, and... Eden is super vague. We have, like, so few details. You have so mm-hmm. much creative freedom. That and you then, can of course, you have
1: the midrash that say, oh, yeah, the Garden of Eden is 60 times bigger than the Earth. Yeah, that's just... Yeah. <laughs> it's just... It's kind of fascinating. So, you know, it's... There's a lot you can do. Again, we've seen so many depictions of it that are almost you know for children there's so many Sunday school depictions of Adam and Eve that sort of has colored it for me but if I really sat down and thought seriously like what would a a serious version of this look like it would be fascinating yeah Mm -hmm. and I actually kind of like the idea of it as a a space that's bigger on the inside right it's not small you it it may be small on the outside but then when you enter it's far bigger than you realized kind of love that idea
0: well, I th- the other thing that I personally like about it too is it's like a place where good existed before evil.
1: Yeah, that is interesting in and of itself. You know, good happened first here; evil was a an afterthought, an accident, an, an infiltration. Yeah, there's there's a lot of power in that. Oh, it's it. There's a lot of cool things you could do with this. I would, I would happily run a game where there was a Garden of Eden in it. I mean, it'd probably be figurative in some sort of fantasy world or something like that. Right. But it is a place of power or an inaccessible place that people are questing for would be delightful. Yeah. I I would love that. And then something that, you know, maybe you get to peek inside or you get to take a piece. Imagine being given a cutting from the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Right. That's that's definitely a kind of falls into the major artifact, but also it's a delicate plant.
0: I like the idea, too, that, you know, maybe it doesn't even this is starting to verge into game design and we're running a little long, so I should probably wrap this up. But it's like it doesn't even do anything like in the traditional game mechanical sense of the word, but it's like an anchor to this lost purity that you can just kind of touch and have, you know, and... There's just—that's kind of cool and powerful all on its own. Any final thoughts on Eden? Just one. Like, we, we've we kind of been—I mean, we started this off with more scripture than usual, right? But, like, this is big, heavy stuff that, you know, we all believe to some extent, whether, you know, there's different interpretations and stuff of it. But this is—as you're going through and looking to game with some of these ideas, remember that— Heck, let's be honest, if you're listening to us, this is part of your religion, you know? It's um, And it's if you're one of our less numerous non-Christian listeners, it's part of somebody's religion. It's part of our religion on the podcast. This is actively being practiced by a lot of people today. Be respectful, be careful, um, be sensitive to the other players at your table.
2: I, I, a Christian, have never gotten in more fights with people... Of other denominations than mine, that I have over the creation story and the Garden of Eden. Like this is one of the more
0: contentious theological sticking contentious.
2: points. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Also, let's be very very careful about colonial narratives. The there's a lot, especially with any sort of interstellar colonization. There are big ethics questions maybe don't dodge them. Maybe this is a good time to examine certain colonial ideas that have seeped into our culture over many, many generations.
1: Yeah, when I ran that colony game, I tried to do that. Now Mm -hmm. that I'm years away from that, I'm kind of looking at it going, I didn't do as good a job as I could have. I tried to help you as
0: much as I possibly could. (laughs) Oh, I know, I know. (laughs) And so
1: that's just, you know, I have grown more over the past few years. Right. I've learned more and understood more. Yeah. And I had a a story I wanted to tell that was kind of difficult to fit into a, a more respectful approach. And that was sort of problematic, but I was trying to make it work and be like, okay, so given that this is what's happening, how can we make it right? Yeah. That, that kind of thing. So yeah, colonization stories are always fraught and, I, I agree Jenny we shouldn't shy away from that
0: mm-hmm.
1: make make that difficulty right in front of you
0: mm-hmm.
1: any other thoughts I don't no, think so I think that, I think that's about it for me okay I'm definitely curious to hear what uh, our listeners say about this if you've ever used this or something like it in games definitely tell us about it yeah. I think it's, it's very cool or if you have ideas of like how you might use it you know hit us up with those. Uh, Hit us up on Twitter. We're saving the game there. We're saving the game on Facebook. We are saving the game kind of all over the place. If you want to talk about this with other community members, join our Discord. It's wonderful. And I'd recommend you do so. Warm, welcoming, and smart. There's a link to that on our site. (laughs) Yep, stgcast.org. And if you are listening to this on something like iTunes or Podchaser or anything like that, please give us a give us a rating and a review that helps us enormously every review helps so much i know it seems like a drop in the bucket of you know compared to large reviews but like the incremental just having people s- still indicate yeah i'm active and listening to this helps the algorithms so much so please do that
0: yeah and i've mentioned this before during this you know part of the podcast but yeah, like back when it was just Grant and me for a while in the middle there we got a couple that had some specific constructive criticism in it and we mm-hmm. tried to incorporate that into future episodes so if there's something you particularly like or you don't you know something you particularly don't like you know a review is a good place to tell us that and we
1: will sometimes make adjustments based on them on that note I'd like to wrap up here this has All been right. a great episode thank yeah. you folks this has been fun yeah I'm going to go buy a book and uh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See, you later, folks. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nyhalor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.